Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I'm going to have a great conversation with my good friend, Dr. Cheryl Chapman. She's been on the podcast before. Uh, today we're going to talk about peak. Um, peak, and we're mainly going to talk about eyelid hygiene. So please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. Emerging presbyopes and emetropic presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily and more comfortably. And we've had this lens for long enough now that we have been able to see the simple and how simple the adaptation has, can be when adjusting from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. When prescribing MyDay contact lenses, you can feel confident about your environmental impact because for every MyDay contact lens sold in the United States, Cooper Vision's partner, Plastic Blank, collects and converts an equal amount of ocean-bound plastic through their global network. MyDay multifocal contact lenses will provide your patients with a great quality of vision and comfortable lens wearing experience, all while making a difference in our environment. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients, and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education, for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. So, Cheryl, thanks for doing this again. Yes, it's very exciting. The... Um the last time we talked about, I don't know that we've ever actually talked about peak on the podcast and sort of the goal of, um, you know, eyelid cleansing earlier on. But, you know, talk about the the um, the genesis of peak. It goes back probably four or five years now. Yeah. So I think it was 2019. This was pre-pandemic. And I remember I sent you a text that had a picture of a patient pre and post um, Blefax treatment. And I think the caption of my text was probably something along the lines of, ooh, check this out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and from that, we kind of started a conversation. I think you said, well, how much are you charging for that? And we kind of started a conversation of like, wow, it's really expensive for people to try and take care of their eyelids. And wow, it's 
really gross that people get to that point before we're doing these therapies. And why, why does it get to that point? Why are we not better about taking care of our eyelids more preventatively? Um, and you, I think, made a comment, we could do this. Like we could do, we could, we could fix this problem. And then I think my reply back to you was, well, I know a guy, um, (laughs) because, uh, my husband, Tom Chapman is, um, MBA, JD, like business guy, um, has worked with startups for a long time, worked in the entrepreneurial world for a long time. And, um, I was like, okay, well, let's have a conversation with Tom. So, um, Chris and I had gone to um, the office for Chapman and Company, and we talked about um, what is the problem. And the problem really boils down to um, people don't have proper eyelid hygiene. It's not something that is ingrained in us the same way that brushing our teeth and dental hygiene is ingrained with us. And, And there wasn't really at that time a product on the market that was geared towards being like a toothbrush for the eye, something that people would use at home on a regular basis. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where it all started. We wanted to create uh, an at-home device and um, have something that people could use to regularly clean their eyelids, um, which is where the Peak Wava was born. It's a at-home um, device that has a sponge and it and it vibrates and it's used in conjunction with a really good tea tree oil-based cleanser that we also um, developed with the aid of a biochemist on staff um, to just really help not only debride the biofilm off of the lid margin, but also to help pull the sponge's magic because it helps pull the makeup and the debris off the eyelid. Um, and so it was really, it's been a fun journey. It took a lot longer to develop the device than we thought it would with some of the slowdowns with um, the pandemic and availability of microchips and things like that. Um, and so many iterations. Um, I know you could probably. No, I think what's, I think, you know, if we take a step back, I, you know, one of the things that I recall was, you know, you said, well, we talked about the cost and, and part of the biggest challenge, I think, with uh, the cost uh, of an in-office procedure is that by the time that it gets to the level of seeing the optometric physician, then those patients have to have pretty significant symptoms in most cases to cover the cost of what we had at the time available and for in-office or office-based treatments. And so when you look at the evidence behind where those biofilms start and when they start, we said, look, we can probably get to this as, at a very earlier stage. The biggest challenge I thought, which was really kind of uh, Tom's original uh, thought in, the, in bringing it to this is you and I just thought, well, man, we, we just need a better, more cost-effective solution to, do, to administer an in-office treatment. And, yep. uh, and because it's too expensive, if we want to administer an in-office treatment to people who are asymptomatic, like you would by scraping plaque off of teeth for people who are largely asymptomatic, just on a routine basis, there's no way that you're going to be able to have a, a cost per plaque cleaning that would cover what what we were having to pay for widgets in office to clean eyelids. Now, I, I say all that to say that in order to, to have a patient that wants to pay that cost, it, they had to be pretty bad, right? They had to be pretty significant. And they have to have symptoms in the vast majority of cases for the vast majority of optometrists. And the other thing that I thought was was challenging is that because that cost is so high and um, and doctors sort of uh, have a finite amount of time and they have to be able to offset those costs, then they're going to have to be able to talk to those patients 
really at length because they weren't hearing, patients aren't hearing about, well, brush your eyelids, clean your eyelids. They don't hear about it any place. Whereas like with brushing our teeth, it's just sort of, we're built to do it when our, our parents brainwash us to do it. And, um, and so that has, it's just so commonplace that in order for doctors to spend the amount of time it takes to educate patients to do that thing, uh, they're going to, they have, their time is too valuable for it at this point. They've got to do other things. And so uh, to get to those patients earlier, you have to have a solution that is simple, that is economical, and that they can do at home so that we can really start or stop that biofilm proliferation earlier on, way before it causes symptoms. And that's where our kind of meeting of the minds sort of allowed us to start thinking about this earlier on, right? We knew we needed to be more cost effective in the office, but we also knew we got to be able to get the patients earlier before they have all these inflammatory problems because of the biofilm reactions and the obstructions of the meibomian glands. And that's where Tom really came in and sort of set a light bulb off in me is like, yeah, well, we can focus, we can do this stuff in office. It's really great, but we can also focus earlier than that as well. So that was um, a light bulb for me. Yeah. You know, one thing that I have found to be really interesting, um, I've been out of optometry school now since 2003, so 20 years. And the way I think about dry eye now is so much different than it was 20 years ago, because we know a lot more now about meibomian gland dysfunction and um, just, you know, we've got mybography now. And, and, I am so much more proactive in looking for it now than I was when I first graduated. Like part of my normal exam now includes having the patient look up, pushing on those lower lids, watching the meibomian gland secretions and always noting in the chart what their secretions look like. Um, and all of our new patients, we do mybography just so that we kind of have a baseline. Um, and if somebody's starting Accutane, like we're treating those patients very, very yeah. aggressively while they're on Accutane. Um, so it's really interesting because um, when you're doing this and you're talking to patients, um, <clears throat> a lot of patients who have SPK and who have dry eye, they're like, I don't have any symptoms. You know, and my staff, that's one of our intake questions is, do you have any dry eye? And a lot of patients say, no, I don't have any dry eye symptoms. Um, but I've kind of over time gotten really good at sort of having some key phrases mm. or some, some key things that I will tell patients that don't take a lot of time. Um, but help the patient conceptualize. And so if I see that their cornea looks very dry and I see telangiectasia along the lid margin and I see that they um, don't have really great meibomian gland secretions, maybe they're really turbid or absent, um, <clears throat> and, and the patient will say, well, I don't have dry symptoms. And I will say to them, you know, um, when a patient has dry eye, a lot of times they don't feel it. Um, I, and I'll say to them, you know how sometimes diabetic patients don't feel their feet mm. because the nerves get damaged and they'll say, oh yeah, like a lot of people know that, right? Yeah. Not everybody, yeah. but a lot of people know that. I will say the same thing happens to the eye. Your cornea has damage to the nerves because of the dry eye and then you don't feel the dryness, but I see the dryness. So we want to make sure your eyelids are healthier. We're just going to start you on some eyelid hygienes to get things going. Um, and then... I'm able to hand it off to my staff and let them have that conversation. So, so I have told the patient, there's a problem. We need to address this problem, but you're right. It can be very time consuming if you really try and get into it and you really try and explain it in depth to the patient. Um, so if you take a little bit of time at a staff meeting, train your staff, make sure your staff is comfortable talking about it. 
you can say a few key things to that patient and then you can hand the patient off and have the staff do a lot of that patient education for you, um, which I think is key. Yeah. So I was on a call with Kristen O'Brien. Have you ever met Kristen? I don't know Kristen. She's in North Carolina. She actually had, she started a cold start practice in uh, Denver, Colorado. Now she's in Denver, North Carolina. I think that's right. And that's not um, confusing. No, not at all. And um, so I was on a call with her uh, this last week. And what she said, I, I loved what she said, because in those circumstances, when patients don't feel their cornea, you know, she'll explain what's going on. And she said, and they'll say, you know, I feel fine. And then she'll say, that concerns me even more. Or something like that, where where that I'm I'm uh, more concerned about that. And the way she said it was was um, very very well taken. You know, it was like, oh yeah, why why don't we talk about that stuff better? Where we're just kind of like, yeah, I know you don't feel it, so now I'm going to bang my head against the wall and hope that you do something. So I thought that was really um, really helpful. And then also your point about training the staff, I think. That's, that is key. And with our initial conversations in terms of how efficient we need to be with our time, our initial conversations need to be just that with those patients is something like whatever rolls off your tongue the best, but it's, you know, for me, it, it sounds like I'm seeing some overgrowth of microorganisms along your eyelids and lashes. The number one reason that patients will develop chronic dry eye over time, sometimes I'll even say chronic inflammatory dry eye over time is because uh, because they get these micro these biofilms. And that's it. That's all I say. And so then what we're going to do is this. And so what did that take me 20 seconds to say that? And then my my treatment plan takes me 20 seconds. Um, and then I'm, I'm handing it off. And then um, so I think those are key. But still, the idea is, can we get first of all, can we get all doctors right? All optometrists to have those very succinct conversations, even if there's nothing deeper than that. Like even if you don't want to build a dry eye practice, but you just want to basically prevent this stuff from getting worse over time. It's, it's okay. We're, do, we're going to do this. I want you to do that. I'm going to see you back at this other, you know, if you don't want to build a dry eye practice, fine. Just have your patients. Actually, I think that if you're having your patients do these things early on before you see a lot of other signs at the very first sign of a telangiectasia at the very first sign of turbid, uh, which is going to be in the late teens, early twenties at the very first sign of mild anterior blephritis. If you start that, then you're going to probably see a lot less severe dry. The amount of severe dry eye I see right now. I mean, we see some, but we didn't, my patients were, we were identifying things. I've been practicing 15 years now and really focused on this for at least 10 years. The number of patients that I see that 10 years ago, we were talking about this with them that have advanced. I don't see a ton of that where I, I definitely see those patients where they find me and those are the real more advanced patients. And so anyway, I, I do think that you can kind of halt that stuff early by just simple cleansing and debulking. I think it's interesting, um, too, you kind of made me think about how optometrists as we're, you know, especially if you've got somebody new and they're thinking, what equipment do I need? Mm. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much more equipment now than there was 20 years ago when I started. And like OCT was just coming out at that point in time. And my biography is new and, 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 uh, Lipaflow is new and all these other, you know, IPL, like all this stuff is expensive, right? Yeah. Like Optimaps, all of that. And so, you know, you've got these doctors who want to do something. You can start treating dry eye with these more simple at-home therapies 
without necessarily having to you know be offering IPL and Lipaflow and things like that. Um, and you can get a little bit of a revenue stream from selling some of this stuff in your office. And I think that's one of um, the beauties of Peak because um, you know Tom, being the business guy, said, "Hey, let's do a subscription box." And why are all these doctors turning their computer screen around and showing patients what to purchase on Amazon? Yeah. Sell this stuff yourself. And Peak can you know, provide those services for the doctors so the doctors don't have to worry about fulfilling it, but the doctors still get revenue from it. And it's not going to be like the hugest stream of revenue, but it's... It's incremental revenue that, that's not nothing. Nice. I mean, I, you know, I look at, at our, um, our office-based products and I always tell people like the reason that we sell stuff in our office is primarily, I mean, it, the, the sole reason is to know that the patients are getting what we've prescribed. Compliance. And, and they are going to adhere to what we've got. Uh, as opposed to kind of searching the shelves. I mean, you've, you've gone into the pharmacy and you've seen, I, I do it all the time. I go just kind of peruse the eye care portion of the pharmacy just to see what's available, just to see what, what they're putting like next to like. So that's the, the primary reason we started doing it on our practice. And now I look at our, you know, annually, the amount of revenue, like the amount of net revenue that's generated from that is, it's significant. I mean, it, it winds up being significant. And so, um, you know, and, and it's almost like, um, you know, my again, my staff and what we talk about all the time is we price that the same as you can find on Amazon, the same pretty much that you can find anywhere in, in any of your big box stores, because I don't look at it as like a huge thing. I mean, you could certainly price whatever you want to. But my point is, I want to be a convenience to those patients. And most of the time, you know, we'll say that, oh, yeah, of course, I'll just get it here. Like they don't, it's not. And, and, and so um, it's a convenience. And it's, uh, I know that the patient is going to get what I've prescribed. I don't ever feel like we're selling it. Um, and it is, a, you know, it's a pretty significant income stream every year that we just don't even really think about. One of the challenging things with patients is that when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and customized lenses, occasionally it can be difficult to keep those lenses clean, scratch free and smudge free. Now, we have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients a best-in-class anti-reflective coating that is also resistant to scratches, smudges, and deposits. This means that patients spend more time enjoying clear and comfortable vision and less time caring for their lenses. So remember that you can provide patients with the best-in-quality, best-in-class, transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com backslash Crizal. My patients with macular degeneration want clear and succinct recommendations from me related to products and solutions that can benefit their long-term ocular health and vision. To do this for my patients, I need to be confident that what I'm recommending will have a benefit to them. And that's why my supplement of choice is MacuHealth. MacuHealth is specifically formulated and clinically proven to rebuild and maximize macular pigment over a lifetime. This results in enhanced visual performance and aids in the treatment and prevention of age-related macular degeneration. I've discussed carotenoid absorption on this podcast with Dr. Nolans and Stringham, and MacuHealth uses a patented process called micromycel technology. And this technology is clinically proven to increase carotenoid concentrations at the target tissue and deliver the highest level of bioavailability studied to date. 
MacuHealth has been great for my patients. We really feel like we have the ability to help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. If you're not utilizing MacuHealth for your patients, check it out for yourself by contacting your MacuHealth representative. It's interesting to hear you say, I don't feel like I'm selling it. Um, I think there's a lot of optometrists out there who are really averse to, quote, selling. I think that, um, you know, by our very nature, we're here to help people, right? And we don't want to feel like a salesman. Um, So I think we need to kind of like do a mind reset for some um, doctors who feel that way. You're not a salesman. You're making recommendations. Um, And so... You know, when you're recommending certain products for patients and you're wanting to make sure that they have compliance on those products, you are providing another service by having those products available available for your patients. A lot of times as I'm, you know, telling patients, we're going to have you start on this, this, and this, they'll say, oh, well, is that over the counter? Um, oh, well, yes, it is. Oh, so I can get it anywhere? Well, yes, you can. And in fact, we have it here. Oh, you do? Good. Like I have just saved that person. They just trip. don't want to go search no, through. No, nobody all the, wants, yeah, and, and especially in today's days and today's day and age, people are so used to online shopping. They're so used to not having to go into a store. And so, you know, with Peak, I have a QR code that's unique to my office, and I will just tell the patient, "Yep, we've got them here for you today." And um, we have a QR code you can scan that, and that will get you um, to the website where you can purchase more of that stuff and have it shipped directly to your home for your convenience. Patients are delighted by that. And if you can delight a patient and make them happy, like why would you feel like that is selling? That is not yeah. selling, that's providing a service. Well, I, I often, I had another conversation recently um, and the same thing, you know, the doctor was concerned about, he was, he, his comment was, I'm worried about the price of it was an office-based treatment for dry eye. I'm worried about the price for the patient. Uh, and, may, and, you know, and, it, and his price was gonna be $750. And, um, and I said, do you worry when a patient buys a $750 pair of glasses? Do you feel like you sold them? And he, and he smiled. He goes, no, I don't worry at all. It never, it never phases me. But for some reason, you know, as a profession, we're completely happy to sell an annual supply of daily multifocal contact lenses to a patient. It actually makes our day. We're not afraid of doing that. We're not afraid of prescribing that contact lens. And then, oh, by the way, they can purchase it from us. Same thing with, with glasses. But for some reason, services and then other, like, uh, you know, medications that are over the counter, uh, products in our practices, we sort of feel like that's uncomfortable. And I don't understand that, but it's absolutely true. And, um, and I, I don't, I can't say that I don't battle that in myself occasionally as well. Like, oh, man, I don't, I, I wonder that I, I know, you know, we've talked about this. I, I, I really don't, um, not recommend stuff because I think a patient can't afford it. It's the worst thing I think you can do. And I've always been surprised when, when I recommend it to people that I don't think can afford something, and then they're the first ones that do it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think my point there is that I, I try not to do that, but I can even feel myself, I, I have to resist that temptation to do it occasionally, even when I'm aware of it. I think it takes practice to get comfortable not judging patients' um, ability to, to afford. And, and I think it takes practice to make sure that you do it regularly, that you don't have preconceived notions on what a patient may or may not want to spend their money on. Our job as their provider, they have hired us 
to give them our best recommendations based on what we think is best for them. And it is absolutely up to that patient to decide on whether or not they want to spend that money. Yeah. Um, and so I just tell myself that all the time. Um, and I would say too, one thing that has made it a lot easier for me to not be afraid of asking patients to spend money on their dry eye therapies is I am a dry eye sufferer myself. And I know how uncomfortable my mm. dry eyes can be when I'm not properly taking care of them. And I wish that I had known mm. 20 years ago what I know now. So I could have prevented the gland loss that I've had yeah. over the years. Yeah. Um, and I look at it that way. And there are so many patients that I can help because I, I know now what I know and I can help them from getting to the point that I'm at. And so never would I wanna withhold a treatment from a patient because what I think they can or cannot afford or what I think they would or would not be willing to spend. That's up to the patient to make that final decision. It's my job to let them know what their options are. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think of all of, all of the people that I know really well, I think you do a very good job of that, you know, and I, and I think I always look to, to people that I kind of admire in how they do, and you're one of those people, I think, in, in a genuine way. I wanna help you. I'm not going to let my preconceived notions about you get in the way of how best I can help you. I think that's that's where you come from. And that really helps me think about like, yeah, the other really good doctors that I know, they don't let themselves get in the way of good patient care. They are not a barrier to good patient care and good patient outcomes. You know, the other thing that you brought up that I thought was was interesting, you kind of went down this path a little bit, but, but um, you know, Peak has always been aware of this idea that we don't want to build uh, build the brand on the backs of an independent practitioner or I, the, the eye care profession in general, just to snatch it away from online. And so you made the comment that, you know, uh, there's subscription. So you say, well, we sell it in office and then the patient can subscribe, uh, if they want to have a subscription or they can purchase it through the, through peaks website, they can use that QR code to access it. But that QR code links your practice to that patient in perpetuity. So all of the cosmetic products that peak manufacturers, all of the other eyelid uh, cleansing products that Peak manufactures, you get some of that revenue every single time and you don't even have to cover that, carry that in your practice. Right. And the other thing is that if patients don't want to do that, they can come right back to Dr. Chapman's practice to purchase it physically in your practice. So I think that was, that was um, something that I think Tom uh, really worked hard on doing as well because of uh, those same reasons as we were looking to partner with um, with practitioners. So for the overall benefit of those patients, so they can get good, good stuff to keep their eyelids clean. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, a lot of the offices and doctors that we've talked to have talked about how they've had the idea of, or they've tried to institute some sort of a subscription box within their own practice. And they found that it was just too cumbersome. Hmm. It was really, it's just a really hard thing to do by yourself. Um, and so it, we've had offices just absolutely love the subscription boxes. Um, you know, it's really great. You can have it logoed. As you know, you yep. have yours logoed. Yep. I have mine logoed. And so it looks like it's coming from that office. It doesn't look like it's coming from a third party. Um, but you also don't need your staff to take time on it. Oh, and by the way, when they're purchasing it through Peak, you don't have the credit card processing fees for the payments that are collected on those products. Uh, which is really nice. And you don't have to have the inventory. You don't have to, I mean, we do have inventory, but, but we don't have to keep all of that other stuff stocked. 
Yeah. And you know, if you have a drop that um, you've had for a while, then you have to worry about expiration dates, which I mean, we've had that happen where some of those drops have expired or you kind of change your prescribing preferences. Like I used to like this drop, but now I'm using more of this drop. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But I mean, that's a really good one where, you know, you go to a meeting, you're like, oh, I tried this. I really love it. I want this in my box now, as opposed to like, now I got to hold, I got to get rid of all the old stuff and bring on this new stuff. Yeah. You don't have to worry about selling through those 20 bottles of whatever else before you start using the new stuff. Um, It's, I've never been a big fan of keeping a lot of inventory around. I know like, like contact lenses, you go to these shows and they always want you to buy a bank. (laughs) And, and then if you ever fall for it, then you end up with like however many boxes of all these contacts. And first of all, where do you store them? And then you have to remember to dispense those rather than ordering them. It's like, Ooh, like, no, it's, it's, and then it takes up space and your office is more cluttered. And so, no, it's really nice to have, not have to worry about inventory issues. You don't have to worry about fulfillment issues. You don't have to worry about staff time. Like it's just, it's, it's a pretty slick, nice thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, so I think the, the overarching goal is, you know, it's obviously we've, we've talked about what's good for the patient and winds up being good for the practice, but really, um, you know, in your mind, uh, when you talk about, about earlier intervention with patients, I mean, I, I am almost to the point I'm not there yet. I should be, I should be, but this is kind of the conservative nature of the profession. It's like, why do I have to wait until I, I mean, the reality is, is I know that patients are going to get biofilms. I know it. it's going to happen no matter, no matter what I need to see. Right. And so why am I not just talking about this to every single patient? What even before I see problems, like all of our kids, you've got a lot of kids in orthokeratology. Um, you do a lot of myopia management, but like in general, patient walks in the door. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to see a thing. I know it's eventually going to be a problem in a significant portion. I mean, you look at, at the studies and, and it can be anywhere. And again, this, this is related to dry eye, but anywhere between 35 and 50% of the population over the age of uh, 50 is going to have dry eye. But then you can take it into, depending on the study, again, when you look at meibomian gland dysfunction, you're talking about 70% of the population. So if that started someplace before, you know that, okay, 70% of the population over the age of 50 and probably higher as you get older are going to have significant problems from dry eye and or meibomian gland dysfunction. And most of those are going to have some component of biofilm problems. So, and it's going to start well in advance of when they have when they have symptomatic problems. So why am I not just talking to about everybody? And, 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 and even patients, like patients will know, you know, we, this is one of the things we learned from some of the clinical studies that we did early on was you'd talk to, to women in particular and you'd say, well, when did you get your makeup off last? And I don't talk about this to, to my patients. I don't know if you do now, but it's not something that I'm spending a lot of time on. And, and they'll say, oh yeah, I, I never get my makeup off. Or, or they'll be like, yeah, I wore it and I, I did a good job. When did you wear it last? Oh, last week. And you see, you know, and you see debris along their eyelashes. So like most patients know they're not doing a good job and they know that they need to do a better job. They just, every single product they has, they have says, don't use around their eyes. Don't use around your eyes. Don't use in your eyes. And so it scares them. So I, I don't know that, that to me is, um, is illuminating. Like what's it going to take? where we just like every single person that walks in the door, it's like my staff, like are like you go to the dentist, how often are you brushing your teeth? How often are you flossing? Like the doctor's not asking that, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, have you ever heard a dentist pick and choose who he recommends they brush their teeth? No, like yeah. the dentist wants everybody yeah. brushing their teeth. 
All eye doctors should want everybody cleaning their eyelid margins um, to help reduce problems with dry eye as we age, just like brushing your teeth helps reduce problems with plaque and gingivitis. Like it's just something that should be um, pervasive um, within our population. So uh, I think that, I think we'll get there. Yeah. Um, I think that people are a lot more in tune with preventative care than they've ever been before. Um, and I think, you know, if you just put up some simple displays in your office, you can pique a lot of interest without even a whole lot of conversations having to happen. Um, what I have found in my practice is that a lot of adults who I have prescribed the therapies for, like, let's say I send some of the foaming cleanser home with a gal and then pretty soon, well, they need more because her husband's using it too. And oh, her teenage daughters have mm. taken it. And now she needs more because, you know, everyone in the house starts using it. Um, it it's really interesting. Or I've had um, just recently, I ha had a husband come in and I, you know, said, you've got this going on. And he said, oh, like my wife. Mm. Yeah. Well, she's feeling a lot better. Yeah. yeah I want that. And they feel better sometimes. They didn't even know they didn't feel good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Realize. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. So, so Cheryl, tell uh, tell the audience where they can find um, where they can find Peak. And you know, I think the reality is is we want you to use Peak. Like we think it's very good, but we want you to do something. Right. I think that's the most important thing is that we're doing something uh, as opposed to nothing, and at least starting a conversation with something. So, if people want to check out Peak, where can they go? Peakpro.com. All right, Dr. Cheryl Chapman, thanks for doing it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome, appreciate it.